Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio, powered by Postano. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. We're excited to be powered by Postano. Follow them online at postano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. You can visit the Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. We are checking in at number 13 in the top 200 business news podcasts on iTunes. So we're uh, going up the ranks, and we appreciate you listening on iTunes. If you go to iTunes, you can just type in Sports Business Radio. We're on TuneIn, Stitcher, several good apps as well. Coming up on the show this week, Grace Hoy. She oversees social media for Arizona State University and their athletic department. She's going to tell us about the terrific partnership that they have with Pistano and how Pistano is helping them highlight their social media efforts at the games themselves at Sun Devil Stadium and online after that big Hail Mary catch against USC to end the game. Uh, their Twitter feed pretty much blew up. One of the busiest days for Arizona State. Uh, Sun Devils at the Sun Devils. So we'll talk to Grace Hoy about their social media efforts. That's always interesting. Nigel Melville, the CEO of USA Rugby, is going to join us. Big sold-out rugby match coming up at Soldier Field in Chicago on November 1st, pitting the USA Eagles against the world champion New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. We'll talk about that match. We'll also talk about the growth of rugby. Rugby and lacrosse, two of the fastest-growing sports in the United States. We'll talk to Nigel Melville. John Wartime, executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, will join us to discuss Sports Illustrated's terrific last few months, breaking the LeBron James to Cleveland news. We'll also discuss Roger Federer, since John had a great interview with him. John also has a new kids' book out called Rookie Bookie. That will help kids learn about math in a fun and engaging way. And then finally, Sam Amick, our friend from USA Today. He covers the NBA. We'll discuss the new media rights deal that the NBA has with ESPN and Turner and how it could impact the league in the future. Lots of talk around that. Joining me is our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? Doing wonderful. Love, uh, as I've talked about before, a good time of year. You know, fall. I love fall of the season, but then you got all the sports coming on. You got baseball playoffs, NBA's coming, football's right in the middle of the season. So yeah, it's a good time of year to, to be a sports fan for sure. How about the Kansas City Royals? As we record this, they are seven and O in the postseason. If someone had said, Hey, I'm going to walk up to the window in Vegas, the betting booth, and I'm going to bet the Royals are going to go undefeated after seven games of the playoffs. I think those would have been long odds. I am amazed by their defense and their speed, but it's a great story. Uh, 1985 was the last time that they had a postseason run, and Kansas City is one of the great sports towns in the United States, and to see their fans engaged and charged up around the Royals is pretty fun to watch. It really is, and I I love their game, too. I love the short game, the bunting, the base stealing, the, the speed, like you said. Their defense is phenomenal. It's like nobody can get it out of the infield on them. And 
they've been fun to watch. And like you said, I mean, I don't think anybody probably thought they'd do this well so far. And uh, we'll see what happens as they keep moving forward. Well, and it's the teams like the Giants, the Cardinals, the Royals, the Orioles that advance to the Final Four over teams with huge payrolls like the Dodgers, the Angels, the Tigers, the Nationals. So, you know, once again, just because you spend a lot of money doesn't necessarily equate to winning championships. Also in Major League Baseball this week, Andrew Friedman, one of the best GMs in Major League Baseball, has done a remarkable job shaping the Tampa Bay Rays roster with not a lot to work with as far as a budget is concerned. He's now the president of baseball operations for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Many teams have tried to pry him away from Tampa Bay. The Dodgers were successful. It'll be interesting to see what he does with that Dodgers team who has spent a lot of money but they have not gotten to the World Series. And we know they're locked into a long-term deal with Clayton Kershaw. They're paying Matt Kemp a lot of money. But Hanley Ramirez is a free agent, Griggs. And I have a feeling Andrew Friedman isn't going to pony up the big dollars to pay Hanley Ramirez, a guy who's hurt pretty often. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And I think, like we were talking about, I mean, there's a Dodgers with a huge payroll that haven't uh, been successful like they probably want to be. And need to be and we'll see if Friedman can come in there and switch things up enough to get that roster to the you know deeper in the playoffs each year maybe next year well and again you look at the final four teams the Cardinals the Giants the Royals the Orioles and the number of players that have come up from their farm system that is the ideal way to do it not going out and spending huge money on free agent contracts so it can be done because again the final four teams have gone the farm system route for the most part versus Huge spending in free agency. Can the Dodgers do that? We will see. Uh, last headline of the week, college football, always in the news. Jameis Winston in the news again with negative headlines. It's not horrible stuff, but uh, autograph signings. There's reports that he's been signing autographs for pay. Todd Gurley, the running back at Georgia, is suspended indefinitely because of the same thing, autographs for pay reportedly. So, um, you know, is this an NCAA rule that needs to change? Is it terrible these guys are making money off of autographs? I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world, but the bad story of the week with Jameis Winston is New York Times, Fox Sports, in-depth story, Griggs, on the fact that Florida State may have covered up his sexual assault allegations and done some pretty shady things uh, with the local police force. If that story is true... Boy, it is going to be bad, bad news for not only Florida State football, but for the university and, uh, frankly, for the Tallahassee Police Department. Yeah, it's not going to look good at all. And that it's it's bad that that's even surfaced enough to kind of get the news buzz going because that means something out there is is setting it up to maybe be true. And it kind of reminds me of the old Penn State thing. Not obviously not as big of a story, as, you know, the allegations, but same kind of thing with the cover up, cover up, and all of a sudden it comes out and you give this huge story. So we'll see what happens with that and. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's always something going on with college football, I tell you. Well, it's an abuse of power is what it is, and that's what we saw at Penn State. We've seen that at other universities. Uh, no university, no athlete is above the law, at least you'd like to think. And uh, we'll follow this story closely, but it's going to be very interesting. All right, a jam-packed show coming up for you this week. Grace Hoy from Arizona State, she handles their social media efforts. She's going to tell us about their great work with Pistano and what Pistano is doing to help them activate fan engagement around the Sun Devils. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Love, that heart is so cold all over my 
Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pastano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pastano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Grace Hoy. She is the social media coordinator for Arizona State Sun Devil Athletics. You can find them online at... The Sun Devils on Twitter. Grace, how are you? I'm well. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So our friends at Pistano are doing some terrific work with you. Of course, Pistano uh, helps leagues and brands aggregate their social media content, which becomes more engaging for fans. Tell us about some of the work you've done with them there at Arizona State. We've used Pistano for a little bit over a year. We started at the beginning of last football season to get fan social media content onto the video board. So taking what fans are writing both at the stadium and then throughout the world and showcasing those posts on our video boards. We use them at football and uh, five other sports right now, men's, women's basketball, volleyball, wrestling, and gymnastics. Um, And then this season we've also expanded to asking a question of the game where we showcase live hashtag voting. So we'll say, Who's your player of the game last week? And then fans will vote in with the choice hashtags, and then we'll show live results throughout the game. So that has been something that's been really great. And then we also have a social media hub on our website that's named after our social media command center, the Spark, um, where we aggregate fan content throughout the week and showcase new posts based on whatever the game is or a big hashtag that we're promoting. Yeah, talk about your social media command center. That seems to be more and more of a trend not only with pro, but collegiate programs and getting, again, getting uh, their fans involved. Right. I'm biased. I love it. I work out of here every day. <laughs> um, it's really critical for us to have somewhere that has reliable and great internet connection throughout games, especially the football games. That's also steps away from the football field. So it can take, I only need 30 seconds to get from the command center onto the field. Um, We have a bunch of flat screen TVs where we watch the in-game video board feed, the TV broadcast, and they also function as computers, which is where we moderate fan content through Postano and then push selected posts to the video board. Everything is maroon and gold in here. We have a mounted pitchfork, chalkboard walls. (laughs) Uh, We have a wall of fame where student-athletes and coaches or alums or senior staff come in and sign it. Um, And, of course, they add their Twitter handle. And then we've also run fan contests and experiences where fans can come in and hang out here for a quarter during the game. So you've got the hashtag Maroon Monsoon going this week. Explain that. And, you know, you use a variety of different hashtags for different campaigns for our audience out there. Most people are familiar with hashtags, but I guess explain why different hashtags. 
we there's always a set game hashtag, which is usually the away opponent versus the home opponent, which is a standard hashtag. But we like to bring in a fun element that uh, highlights the theme, whatever that week may be. Like this week, we're wearing maroon, so it's to remind people to wear maroon. And then a spinoff of Arizona Monsoons. This is our third annual maroon monsoon at Sundival Stadium. So it's to get people hyped up, um, bring something a little bit different, and then highlight all the specific maroon monsoon activities we have going on. Now, you guys had a big football win over USC, an amazing comeback at USC. How much did your social media feeds just get on fire after that victory? That was insane. It was incredible to watch and a little bit stressful to be live (laughs) tweeting a game like that, but always a great one at something so positive. Um, The fans exploded. They were so happy. Everyone here was, and that's another way that we use our post on social hub right now on our website. It's thesunnevels.com slash the spark. We still have all the great fan posts following our Hail Mary win. Um, And we have tons of fan posts there and all the content of pictures. We had fans send in reaction videos. A lot of people filmed their reactions and then we compiled a great video of the game clips and then also fans throughout the world reacting and we pushed that out through social. So it was really great to see people get so excited um, and we have that featured on the website. And then today it'll switch over to be all Marin Monsoon fan content. So from your big board in the stadium to the command center, Pistano is helping display your social media content and aggregate it in a way that people can see it all in one place. And uh, I know that's the power of Pistano. And I do an event in New York called the Sports PR Summit, and they do all of the uh, social media aggregation for our event. We were trending at one point during our event. And it's just, it's really cool for me to see everything in one place and to see, you know, everything on Instagram and Twitter. And um, I think it's great. Oh, absolutely. We love it. And obviously, we love to promote our own social media um, when possible. But this is a really unique feature that allows us to um, reflect what the fans are talking about. And show them some love and put their posts on the website or on the video board. That gets them excited. Our fan content is crucial to us. We want to show them that we're listening to what they're saying. And then also hopefully it encourages them to share with their friends and continue to um, use their social media profiles to talk with us. What about monetizing social media? That's a trend that is definitely increasing and um, you know, a lot of people are putting their eyes on social media and following it, especially the younger crowd. Do you guys do anything to, you know, promote sponsors or do things to help kind of uh, monetize social media? Uh, we do. I In the last year, sponsors have definitely been catching on to that and been more interested in bringing their campaigns, maybe not just from signage in stadium, but then also to something digital one of our sponsors actually um, wanted to jump on with uh, Postano and have got some of their posts within our um, video board feed. Um, and then a huge thing, I think, is always making sure that it's co-branded. Yes, the fans are definitely on digital. All the stats are there. But in order for it to be compelling content for our fans, that makes sense. It needs to match our brand, too. But I think there are great opportunities to match sponsor content um, with what we're promoting and something that's useful and interesting to fans. People in your role always seem to be looking for like, what's next? What's the next trend technology-wise, social media-wise? What do you see coming down the track in the next year or so that you think, hey, you know, we've got to be a part of this? 
I think it's just capturing so much of fan content. There are so many um, apps now that seem to take what fans are putting on different websites or the video that they're recording. You can um, They can directly upload through some apps video that they have on their phones or other social media profiles and upload it to this app. And then all of a sudden you have it on your own device um, or your storage, and then you can repurpose it. Um, it's interesting now, um, all the different emoji apps that are coming up, and it will be interesting to see if that's something that's sticky that lasts. Yeah, I bet. I'm always interested in that stuff. How many different angles of fan video have you seen of the Hail Mary pass to beat USC? So many. Um, we've seen them from all over the country. Then we got uh, reaction posts from, honestly, all over the world. A lot from in-stadium, a lot from people at home. Um, people going crazy, a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, and all of them. That was the- Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about social media is you see what the TV camera angle is because we all watch it on TV, but to get the fan video and to get you know inside the dorm room the reaction to the touchdown and People in a certain bar, the reaction, that's the thing to that to me that really makes social media pretty cool to see all the different reactions to a play like that. Oh yeah, and when we right after the game I posted a clip of it um from Snappy T V and it was our most retweeted tweet ever. All I put was all caps this and then a link to rewatch the video and on Twitter alone and a couple of days later I had almost thirty thousand loops. Um, <sighs> so people definitely can't get enough. What do you find uh, is the stickiest form of content. Is it video? Like, you know, you just mentioned that was the most retweeted tweet ever. What, if people listening to this said, what's the recipe for getting a retweet? What would you say that is? The biggest key is listening to your fans. Going into your analytics and seeing what kind of language has the best response, what type of media or no media, but typically it does have a photo or a video, gets the best uh, type of response, look at the time of day, and those all can make kind of the perfect storm. Uh, I notice fluctuations between all the different social media channels, and sometimes we'll have better days on Facebook and sometimes um, better days on Twitter. So catchy hashtags definitely for uh, Twitter. And then video lately on Facebook has been huge for us. For Twitter, what are the best... People have talked to me about this, reporters. The best time of day to post on Twitter is X. What, what do you think the best time to post on Twitter? Is there a date and a time that's the best to post? For us, it's just really whenever something big is happening or whenever a game is going on because that's when all eyes are on us. Grace Hoy, the social media coordinator, Sun Devil Athletics. Find them on Twitter at the Sun Devils. Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and discuss your social media efforts at Arizona State and your fantastic partnership with Pastana. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Powered by Postana. Hello, my name is Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. 
back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Nigel Melville. He is the CEO of USA Rugby. There's a big sold-out rugby match coming up at Soldier Field in Chicago on November 1st, pitting the USA Eagles against the world champion New Zealand All Blacks rugby teams. Nigel, how are you? Very well, thank you. But as you know, I'm pretty busy. Yeah, I know you're very busy. Thanks for taking a few minutes. So are you surprised that the November 1st match sold out at Soldier Field in Chicago? That's a huge venue, and it really speaks to the interest in, in rugby. Well, it does. And I think when you say surprised, we're, we're delighted, obviously, that there's so much support for the game. When we went into this, you know, we know we, knew we needed a bigger stadium than the ones we've been playing in. To bring over the New Zealand All Blacks is a tremendous boost for everybody and a great opportunity to the world champions. And great for our team to be able to play against, you know, those sort of players. So it was great for everyone on many fronts. And then we went to a big stadium. We found a, an iconic stadium. We found it in Chicago, which is a sports mad city. I really hope people get to be behind it. And uh, it's just taken on a sort of a, a, a spirit of its own. It's, uh, it's very exciting. Um, we hope we get 40,000 plus. It looks like it's going to sell out 60,000. That's fantastic. Where would you rank New Zealand's all-black rugby team in terms of global sports brands like a Manchester United or a New York Yankees in baseball? Yeah, I think they're one of the top five brands in, uh, in, in uh, world sport at the moment. I mean, they're recognized all over the world. They are probably as well at the moment the best team they've probably ever had uh, in the history of the all-black brands. It's a pretty big statement. And, uh, you know, it'd be great to see them play and to have them in uh, the USA. Last time we spoke, rugby, one of the fastest-growing sports in the United States. Give us some numbers. How fast is it growing right now? We have about 115,000 registered members, so registered players. And then we have nearly 2 million kids now playing in uh, you know, age 10 to 12 in our uh, school programs, after-school programs, and uh, using our state rugby organizations around the country to promote the game. So it's growing really well, uh, particularly in the grassroots, where actually that's your, your lifeblood and that's your future. What are you doing specifically to grow the sport? Because I look at like Major League Baseball and they're having all types of problems trying to get African Americans to play baseball. What are you doing specifically to get kids who may be playing football or basketball or baseball to play rugby instead? Well, the key is to get the ball in the hands of the kids and let them have a go because once they've had a go, they, they, they get sold on it pretty quickly because the opportunity in rugby is for them to hold the ball, to run with the ball. You know, to, to evade, to score, to defend and be on the field the whole time. And I think that appeals to, to young kids who just want to be out there playing. And so we, we made a conscious effort to develop a game that was simple. We made it non-contact to start with. So it's, there's no threats of, uh, you know, the physical side that people are sometimes concerned about with rugby and then teach them gradually good techniques and good, uh, uh, good manners really and good ways to play the game. And, uh, they, they get involved and it, it it's really working well for us. So our high school uh, rugby is growing tre- tremendously, and so are our colleges. The other thing that's growing are your partnerships. You've got a partnership with the Legacy Agency. You've got a partnership with NBC. You've got a partnership with AIG. That's certainly got to help your efforts. Oh, absolutely. And everyone's, everyone's pulling their weight. And uh, the likes of Emirates and AIG yeah, have, have considerable uh, you know, power in the market here and want to really get behind us. Legacy Agency have been very supportive. Uh, NBC is just tremendous to rugby and have been for a number of years. We hope to continue that relationship going forward. And so it's uh, all hands to the deck, but everyone's pulling in the same direction to grow the game, to get more visibility, and to you know, have a great time doing it. 
I've got a 10-year-old daughter. Where's women's rugby or girls' rugby at this point? About 25% of our membership are, are girls. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're one of the better teams in the world. We're probably in the top six uh, worldwide now, which is great. Our seventh team, I think seventh is a great opportunity for women's rugby. And uh, they, they really enjoy the, the new Olympic version of the game because seventh is a very simple form of the game. It's great. It's a great athletic uh, endeavor. And uh, it's certainly growing uh, women's rugby in the seventh area. Last question for you. How vital are the Olympics to keep your success going? And do you think Team USA will qualify? And what does that process look like? Well, the process will mean that the World Series that we're in at the moment, we need to come in the top four. Um, but we've never been in the top four, so that's pretty uh, pretty much a long shot. And then uh, when you look at the qualification through the region, that means we basically have to beat Canada in the North American Caribbean Rugby uh, Seven in uh, June next year. So uh, as host of that, we hope that uh, being at home will be a big boost for our teams. And uh, let's see if they can qualify and uh, go to Rio, and I think that'll be a great boost. Well, good luck in the match coming up at Soldier Field in Chicago on November 1st. You can follow Nigel on Twitter at Nigel Melville. Nigel, thanks. I know you're busy. Thanks for taking the time to join us on Sports Business Radio, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your support. No problem. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Powered by Postano. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is John Wartime. He is the executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter at John underscore Wartime. He's been on our show many times before. John, how are you? Good. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. I've got to congratulate you and the team at Sports Illustrated on a just wonderful last few months, starting with the uh, breaking news about LeBron James going back to Cleveland, that great piece with Lee Jenkins that he did. And then 
Maybe the best interview I've ever read or heard with an athlete was your interview in August with Roger Federer. I found that fascinating. I, I've always followed Roger Federer through his career, but I learned things about Roger Federer. How much time did you have with him? Because he went really in-depth with you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the funny backstory if you can spare the time. Sure. Which is, uh, we were going to do a Serena Williams story. It was unclear if she was going to cooperate. So, well, we should get a backup contacted Roger Federer, but, you know, half an hour later, he said, sure, when can you do it? When, when can I do it? So when can you do it? No, pick a time. So we decided to do it in Toronto. We blocked in for Saturday. Then I wrote back and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I misread my calendar. Actually, I'm, I'm out. Could, could you, you know, we, we can do it by phone. He said, no, nah, don't worry about it. Why don't we do it Friday instead? So I, I went up. I saw him. He was, he was there. He was ready to go. He never once said, you know, what is this for? Or is this a cover? Or these are the questions you can ask and these are the questions you can't ask. It was just very casual. And uh, apart from, you know, this, this is just an exceptional, just an exceptional athlete, exceptional human being. But it came out great. And, and you want to sort of say to other athletes, when everything is so managed and everything is such a production, it sometimes can cut against you. I mean, here's a guy who just, he had confidence. You know, we, we have history and we've, obviously have some rapport and a relationship. Um, but I thought one of the reasons it came out so well is because it wasn't a big deal to him. It was just, you know, so, someone who I'd like to think he trusted and there weren't a lot of conditions and there weren't how long is this going to be and the clock's running and here's, you have to mention this and that foundation. I mean, it was just a normal conversation. And um, like you said, I mean, I got, I got a lot of nice response to that and it's all, it's all on him. I mean, I, I had the easy job, but Sometimes uh, the the less stage managed, the better it ends up being in the end. Well, and I think what you said, the relationship and the rapport and the trust that you've built with him over his career, I'm sure he felt comfortable sitting down with you. And, you know, I almost wish as Jeter's career was winding down with the Yankees that he would have done one of those sit downs. It's like, Jeter, let us in a little bit. Let us see a little bit behind the curtain. And Federer, in the twilight of his career, did that interview with you. And uh, I will certainly post the link again on my Twitter feed. But I just thought it was as good of an in-depth interview with an athlete that I've ever read. So congratulations on that. Quickly, with the Lee Jenkins piece, I know you've probably answered this a million times. But, boy, uh, that was such a coup for you guys. Just give our audience a, a very quick Reader's Digest how did that come about? Because everyone was in the dark. Everyone was speculating about LeBron James and where he was going. And in the meantime, you guys are working on this piece, and, and you had the news. Yeah, I think it was important to LeBron especially. I mean, I think, you know, it was, he didn't necessarily say as much, but I think we, we all know that it didn't go so well last time he, he had a decision like this and an announcement, and I think he wanted to do something totally differently. And I think he wanted to have a bit more sort of control, almost like an op-ed piece. And he had a relationship with Lee, and there was again, like like we were just talking, there was a level of trust there, and it was a you know obviously a pretty tight circle of people that that knew about this, but you know we we were sort of happy to in, in some ways be the vessel and ha happy to deliver the message for him, and um, it, it it all worked out. I think he appreciated the fact that it was the the antithesis of what it was last time. It was not a huge media deal. I mean, it was there was a lot of speculation, but there there was no great production and TV trucks. And it was, it was fairly simple the way it was delivered. And, um, you know, I, I think again, if his objective was to do this tastefully and there was a public relations dimension to this, um, I mean, I think 
you, you can sort of agree or disagree, but I, but I think from where I sat, it, it worked out really well for him. Yeah, I think it did work out well for him. The thing that was incredible to me, and we discussed this on the phone after it happened, is in this day and age where it is so hard to keep any news, much less news like this, under wraps, the fact that you guys were able to keep this under wraps and his camp was able to keep this under wraps was phenomenal to me. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the one thing we had going for it, and it was the same, honestly, it was the same with something like Jason Collins, was everyone had the same objective, that it wasn't as though somebody had an incentive to leak it, and it wasn't as though somebody you know, was, was feeling betrayed. I mean, everybody was on the same page, and everybody wanted the same outcome, and I think that's what that's what made it easier. There were not external pressures, or there were not people that had different agendas. I think everybody wanted this news to hold, and everybody wanted it to be delivered like this. And again, I mean, it was a very small circle. But I think that's one reason. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's hard to keep anything a, a secret these days. But I think when, when everybody's interests are aligned, it sure makes it easier. John Wartime, executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, is our guest, also author of many of my favorite books. And he's got a new one out called Rookie Bookie. And it's a kid's book. The target audience is ages 8 to 12, which is right in my daughter's age range. So we will be reading this book. But uh, another really... Good collaboration with your co-author from the bestseller Scorecasting. Tell us a little bit about Rookie Bookie. Um, yeah, we I, I wrote uh, Scorecasting with a longtime friend of mine who's an economist, Toby Toby Moskowitz, who's an economist at the University of Chicago, and we were talking about what to do next. Should we do a sequel? Should we should we try to sort of think of another angle? And we've got six six kids between us. He's he's beating me four to two. But uh, we, we've got six kids between us. I think both of us are really surprised by how little personal finance and sort of basic basic economic and financial literacy are taught in schools. And we said, you know, if you're writing a book about astrophysics, it's one thing. But a lot of the concepts in scorecasting, a lot of sort of the, the sports and behavioral economics and the sports and decision-making crossover is kind of fun to kids, and they, they can get it. I mean, we were surprised when we did scorecasting how many of the readers were middle school and high school kids. So we sort of said, you know what, maybe we could do something like scorecasting as, as a kid's book. And so we played around with some ideas. And basically we thought the best way was to come up with a story and embed a lot of these principles, a lot of the, the probability and, and some, of the, some of the behavioral economics into a story. So we basically have a sports story with a lot of, of sort of economics baked into it. And, um, it was just sort of, I mean, it was, this was honestly more of, more of a passion project than anything we're looking to uh, sell a million copies on. But we, we had a lot of fun, and uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot, of, a lot of libraries are buying it, and this was really it was a totally different area for both of us. I mean, neither of us are kids' books authors or have done much work here, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So how do you put yourself in the mind of Mitch Sloan, who is the main character in the book, and write from his perspective as he goes through this journey in the book? Uh, we were, I mean, we were lucky that we had a, a focus group of six that we could turn to and say, you know, would, would a kid ever say this, or does this sound like something a kid would do? Um, the book takes place in, in Indiana, where Toby and I are both from. So it, at some level, we were able to use our own experience. But um, I mean, again, you, you look at the experience of being a sports fan today, if you're a kid, and you know, most uh, largely because of technology, but I think 
somewhat philosophically too, it's it's different from what you and I. I mean, you and I are probably about the same age. And to be a sports fan, yeah, you you care about teams and you care about winning and losing. But between fantasy and social media and analytics, it's a really different experience for uh, for kids today to be sports fans. That was that was something we tried to get across as well. No, I think it's great. You know, again, I go to the library every week with my daughter, and I have not seen a book like this that tackles math and uh, addresses this topic. It's funny. Uh, two years ago, I was at Comic-Con with my daughter, and oh, we ran into Henry Winkler, the Fonz. And we were talking to him, and he was chatting her up, and he said, I write kids' books called Hank Zipser. So we've read all of his books, and Hank, uh, Henry Winkler had dyslexia growing up and learning disabilities, which a lot of people don't know. So he writes from the perspective of a kid himself, Hank Zipser, growing up. And the book series has some great lessons in it, but anytime we can find a, a, you know, a book like yours, Rookie Bookie, it's great for learning for the kids. Cause there's just like you said, at this topic, there's not really any books out there that are written in a fun, you know, non textbook type of way. It, that's really funny. I didn't know that about Henry Winkler, but um, no, it's, it's funny. I mean, everybody talks about how we have this problem with enumeracy, like illiteracy for math in, in the U S and it's especially, it seems, seems now to be especially bad for boys, and people sort of say without any shame, oh, I'm no good at math. I mean, you'd never say I'm no good at words or I'm no good at reading, but there's almost a lack of embarrassment to say, oh, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm no good with numbers. And, you know, all these academics and these educational consultants, there's sort of this big national discussion in education about how we do something about it. And it just seems like sports, especially, um, Especially with kids today, sports is just such an obvious way to explain some of these concepts and explain things like probability and, you know, the, the batter that goes three for five, what he has to do with his next at bat. I mean, it just seems such an obvious way to use – it's a practical application that, that kids will get. And it, it seems like a pretty obvious place to base um, math education and, and sort of finance as well. I mean, it, it matters when you, when you trade a player. What are you doing? You're basically short-selling. And, uh, you know, when, when you're expanding, when the NBA and the, and the NFL is putting games in London, what are they doing? They're expanding their global reach, which is something that, you know, McDonald's and Philip Morris does as well. So it just seems like sports is a really obvious prism to teach kids some of these basic concepts. You do realize that you're on to something much bigger than a book, right? I mean, I can see the, the rookie bookie cartoon I can see uh, lots of applications for this get, that could literally be used in the classroom. Because again, like you just said, and I agree, uh, and I teach a college course at, at Portland State, math is something that is seen by many as, oh, it's boring. You know, unless you're really wanting to be an accountant when you grow up to the, to the common person, they're like, oh, I just got to get through math. You're making this fun to learn math. And, and like you said, with sports, you can remember things a lot easier as they apply to math than if your teacher just stands up at the front of the room and says, open your textbook and, you know, let's talk about geometry today or uh, multiplication or, or things like that. So I think you're on to something bigger here. This might be your, your ticket to early retirement, John. I need you as my agent. Uh, <laughs> no, it's funny. People, people have said the same thing. And, you know, honestly, I mean, there's, there's some book, I mean, if we're being totally honest, which we are. Um, no, I mean, look, some books you, you write in hopes that they're bestsellers and, and you sort of have big ambitions. This this was really kind of, a, again, a, a fun, I don't want to diminish it, but it was a fun project that I did with a buddy. And it was it was mostly, uh, 
you know, so so my son and his friends could get their name in a book. I mean, it, it was not anything we did with grand ambitions. But it's funny, the more people we talk about, they say the same thing that they, they you do, which is, you know, you, you guys should really figure out a way to, to go bigger on this. So who knows? But it, um, again, we were, we, we had a good time with it, which was really kind of our, our principal aim. And we'll, we'll, we'll see now, I guess. So how cool are you with your kids now? I hear from these actors all the time that once they do an animated voice film, uh, they're really cool with their kids. Are you like really super cool with your kids in a way that you weren't before? I'm I'm never super cool with my kids. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's that's so funny. You hear the same thing exactly. That that Ben Affleck, all all the uh, all the actors do the um, do the animation for exactly that reason. The uh, the the one issue we had is the the wheels of publishing can turn can turn slowly. So uh, you write something when your kids in you know in fifth grade, and by the time they're in seventh grade, uh, tastes have changed. But uh, no, it, it was fun, and and you know our our kids have all read it and. They, I don't know if they were just being nice, but they, they seem to have made it through and uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, we have characters that we named after their friends. And we, you know, for benefit the schools, you auctioned off some character names. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a bonus. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we did okay in the kid department. So how did you come up with the name of the book, Rookie Bookie? Explain that. The... Book is is basically. I mean, we were told when you do these kids books, now they have to have this, you know, like uh, like wimpy kid. They sort of have to have a little bit of a subversive element. I mean, the, the kid you don't want doing horrible things, right. but it can't be an after school special either. So the premise is that our uh, our protagonist is very good at math and, and likes sports. He's not a good athlete, but he's into sports and he figures out a way to uh, to basically profit running a uh, a bookmaking pool in his middle school. So um, that sort of was it was an entree into uh, into math and probability and um, I mean in, in, in hopes it's sort of a, a condemnation of, of gambling. But uh, that that was sort of the, the premise is he he gets in trouble by uh, running a, a football pool in his middle school. But then uh, he gets out of it. It looks like and he's got his friend uh, Jamie. I was happy to see. You know, a prominent female character. Since I'm the dad of a, a daughter, I think that's good too. That uh, you know, he, he's got some friends that kind of come to life in this book as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we wanted to write this for for both genders uh, as well. And um, you know, again, in, in in the end, virtue virtue wins out. But uh, yeah, they, his sidekick is a female. So the book is on sale now, Rookie Bookie. You can buy it at Amazon.com. Where else can you get it? I'm sure bookstores everywhere. I know where I live in Portland, Powell's has it. I was going to say, Powell's, I'm sending everyone to, uh, to Powell's.com. They, they need the uh, business more than Amazon. Yeah, Powell's.com, fantastic bookstore. It's amazing. People that come visit Portland, they go to two places, Voodoo Donuts and Powell's. <laughs> those, are the, those are the two places. Is that right? Is that where people... Uh... Oh. They still go to the montage under the uh, under the Morrison Sometimes. Bridge. Sometimes I used to send people. Yeah, they have good uh, good uh, jambalaya and mac yeah, and exactly. cheese. But I'll tell you, the Voodoo Donuts when the MLS All Star Game was here this summer, I think everyone that came to town went through Voodoo Donuts at one point in time, and uh, everyone goes to Powell's too. So go to Powell's dot com. Rookie Bookie is the book, and John Wartant, executive editor. Senior writer for Sports Illustrated, author, is our guest. You can find him on Twitter at John underscore wartime. John, thanks for taking the time. Best of success with the new book, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Very good. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger, powered by Postano. Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pastano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pastano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Sam Amick. He covers the NBA for USA Today. He does a great job, one of the best NBA writers out there. You can find him on Twitter at Sam underscore Amick. That's A-M-I-C-K. Sam, how are you? Doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. It's been way too long. Let's talk about the new media rights deal that the NBA has with ESPN and Turner. It is a doozy. $24 billion breaks down to about $2.6 billion per season, which works out to about $86 million per team. And if you look at payroll, that $86 million should pretty much cover your team payroll. So the days of crying poor as an NBA owner have to be over, right, Sam? I would imagine. I would imagine, my friend. I, I, I wish that was the case. Uh, you know, they, they're going to go from crying poor to wanting more, I'm afraid. You know, and I think in 2017, when both sides have options and everybody expects, uh, you know, another uh, negotiation to go down when it comes to the CBA, uh, in spite of this TV deal and the magnitude of it, I do expect the owners to try to get more than the 50-50 split, and clearly I expect the players to get, you know, try to get more than 50-50. So that's the only disappointing subplot to this whole thing because people even like myself who cover the league, hey, it's great that the league's doing well and it's good for everybody and there's a ripple effect in terms of the, the NBA succeeding. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think it's going to halt a, a negotiation and a possible work stoppage down the road. Like you said, 2017 is when the uh... – Owners and the players could opt out. A lot of talk about the players opting out. The two sticking points, you know, one, uh, you hear players saying, hey, let's do away with max contracts. If I'm LeBron James, there shouldn't be a ceiling on how much I can earn. Uh, you hear owners whispering about, well, okay, if we do away with max contracts and maybe we do away with guaranteed contracts as well. If you remember, and I'm sure you do, last time around, there were kind of fractions within the players' union. There were the LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kobe Bryant, people making elite money. But then there's the the middle-of-the-road guys and the entry-level guys. And, you know, they kind of broke down because LeBron James and Kevin Durant want something different than the guy on the end of the bench. The guy on the end of the bench wants a guaranteed contract. He doesn't care about the max contract because he's not going to make max money. 
Do you think yeah. the players' union will be in unison, or do you think we're going to see the same thing that we saw last time where maybe these guys fracture off again? Yeah, I think a fracture is very possible. And going forward, the question is, you know, how committed are guys like LeBron to this cause when it comes to trying to get rid of Max Steele, when it comes to, you know, getting somewhat closer to what they would see as, as fair pay. And I know the common public, you know, average Joes like you and I, Brian, can't relate to the money these guys are making. But listen, it's an economic equation, and there is an absolute argument to be made that the superstars in the NBA are underpaid simply when you're talking about revenue, you know, which part of it they're responsible for. But as we get closer to 2017, if I had to handicap it, I think, you know, what happened last time probably happens again where you have the masses and the fact that, okay, so what is, what's it going to be? 400, 420 players in this league who don't, who are not in that category of a LeBron and, and guys like that. Those guys will get louder. Their agents will get louder. And I think, that I just have a hard time seeing those guys getting silenced. I mean, even yesterday, and this is kind of an offshoot of what we're talking about, and it's a different storyline, but it kind of relates. The 44-minute game possibility that was first revealed yesterday, they're going to uh, test it coming up here pretty soon in the preseason. Uh, something I noticed, Jared Dudley, who qualifies as a kind of middle-of-the-road player, retweeted a writer who had basically said, you know, that this is going to affect role players and there's going to be pushback because – if these guys are getting less minutes, that means less money. And, and it was a little bit of a, a sliver of what we're talking about here and the fact that uh, it makes for good copy and good conversation right now, this whole idea of superstars and, and their salaries just shooting through the roof. But uh, I think reality is going to set in at some point. So I've got a solution. I'm one of those guys that if you're going to criticize something, you got to have a solution. Here's my solution, and I want to hear what you think. I'm convinced sure. there's no more than – five max guys in the NBA, LeBron, Durant, maybe a few other guys. I think there's a lot of guys getting max money that aren't max guys. They're not changing the value of your franchise. Um, they're not selling out all your sponsorships and ticket inventory. So here's my solution. I think they need to change the rule so that max guys like LeBron, like Durant, can get part ownership of the team. And when I say ownership, I mean a very small percentage, 1% to 2%. And for all of those out there who may be laughing at this and going, Burger, that's a stupid idea. If you look at how endorsement deals are done right now, there's a lot of companies that don't have enough money to pay LeBron James, Kevin Durant to be their spokespeople. And I'll use uh, Beats by Dre as an example. They wanted LeBron James as a spokesperson when they first launched. They didn't have the money to pay LeBron what he felt he needed to be paid. So they gave him part ownership of the company. Well, Beats by Dre sold to Apple, and it's reported that LeBron made $30 million because he had a piece yeah. of Beats by Dre. If you look at Vitamin Water, if you look at – there's so many different companies that are doing equity-type deals. Why not make the handful of guys in the NBA who truly deserve to be part of the risk and the reward – Give them a piece of the ownership. The other thing that does, Sam, is it keeps guys, if you're a part owner of a team, even if it's 1%, you're probably not as likely to leave via free agency. It's gonna, you're not gonna move around as much. Kevin Durant's gonna stay in Oklahoma City. LeBron's gonna stay in Cleveland. What do you think of that idea? Uh, business wise, I like it, but the, I think the, the first question that just jumps out at you, and you kind of alluded to it, is just player movement and how, you handle that component. The idea that if you're Kevin Durant, you're going to be a free agent in 2016. 
and you're presented with an opportunity to own part of the thunder, it might be intriguing. And like you said, you might know that down the line you could have an absolute windfall. And so business-wise, it's really got your attention. But then the human aspect kicks in when it comes to a young guy who's not sure what the Thunder roster is going to look like in a couple of years, not sure the context of the Western Conference. And as a competitor, does he still want to be there? That's where the awkward part comes in. If he ends up deciding, well, thanks for part ownership, but, but I'm not feeling it, then you talk about a bitter pill to swallow for a fan base when they know that a guy who plays on another team owns part of their franchise. And, and so I would assume – it would have to come with some sort of lifetime agreement. I just don't know how you bridge that gap. Well, or if you do go sign with another team, you have to sell your ownership stake. So, you know, we've seen yeah. that with owners where, okay, I'm a minority owner, but now I'm going to go buy my own team. I've got to sell my minority stake in order to become the full-fledged owner of this other team. So that can be addressed. You know, I guess when you come into player personnel moves, like if you're LeBron and you have 1% of the Cavs, do you want to be consulted on all the moves? But guess what? He already is, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, he's already kind of the part owner, but he doesn't have the piece of the pie. He doesn't have the upside that Dan Gilbert has. So why not give him a piece of the upside? You know, if you look back to when Jordan was playing, Jordan, his last contract, $33 million for a season. And that's really when we saw this cap kick in where there were max contracts because owners didn't want to go, well, gosh, I got to pay a guy. $50 million. Well, now as an owner, you don't have to pay that guy $50 million. You pay him, I guess, the maximum amount you can pay him under your collective bargaining agreement. But then he also has a piece of the ownership stake. So that's his real upside. Again, using that Beats by Dre example with LeBron, he wasn't getting paid any money, but he knew that one day when Beats by Dre sold, he was getting a big chunk of the money. And he did. He got $30 million, which is probably more than they would have paid him if they just sat down and said, hey, we want you to do a few commercials. We'll pay you a million dollars, right? No, and I hear you and all that. And, and listen, I, I can guarantee you that teams – are you know grasping at straws a little bit to try to to keep up in this arms race when it comes to their you know their uh, their revenue their pay being what drives these players' motivations and by that I mean the beats by Dre thing with LeBron all of a sudden he was making more on that deal than he was that season from the Heat sure uh, Kevin you know Kevin Durant signs uh, re-ups with Nike and all of a sudden if you're the Thunder you're thinking geez we can't even get his attention with a max contract over here because of the money he's making off the court. And so in that regard, these teams are falling behind when it comes to how relevant, you know, their income is and their pay to these players. That's a dangerous game because then their ability to influence these guys, the decisions they make gets minimized. And then I think, you know, what you're talking about ends up at least getting put on the table is an interesting idea. I kind of like it. Well, in the middle of the road guy and the guy at the end of the bench, there's no way that they're ever going to give in on those guaranteed contracts. They're not going to go the NFL route and go, okay, you know, I'll take a signing bonus and I'll waive my guaranteed contract. They're not going to give that up. So, you know, that's where you've kind of got, how do you deal with the five or six guys in the league that really deserve max money that are game changers and then treat the rest of the league kind of a different way with those guaranteed contracts? I think that's the only way it's going to work in the end. And, you know, I guess we'll see. There's a lot of smart people, but you know, you hear Mark Cuban talking about, well, the owner, the, the players that want more money, they need to assume some of the risk. Well, you know, I think with this new deal in place, there's a lot less risk than there was. I don't think any team can say, Hey, I'm losing money, but 
if you truly want to give a LeBron or, you know, Jordan back in the day what they're worth, you're never going to be able to do that within the team constraint. Cause if you pay LeBron 90% of your payroll, who are you going to fill the rest of the roster out with, right? Well, not to mention, and like Cuban is the one who brought up the whole idea of guaranteed deals not being guaranteed. And who knows? Cause we've never seen it unfold. But my first thought is, like you said, if you got LeBron making 90% and the rest of the guys sitting there are not guaranteed deals, the actual impact on the game and the flow and the style and, and, you know, what's going through the minds of all the guys on the court. I think that's a dangerous, you know, experiment to actually even entertain. You know, you're going to have guys chucking up shots and LeBron looking at them like, what the hell are you doing? You know, the guy's not on a guaranteed deal. He's trying to you know, get paid. And, and of course he'd get shipped out of town pretty quickly, but I think it would muddy the waters. And, uh, you know, I don't see that happening either. My guest is Sam Amick. He covers the NBA for USA Today. So Adam Silver's had an interesting start to his tenure as commissioner. I think he handled the Donald Sterling situation as well as it could be handled. I also get a sense from talking to players and just people around the league, they really believe that he is the commissioner for both the owners and the players. I look at Roger Goodell. I had Kevin Mawai on the show last week who was a 16-year vet in the NFL. He told me that the players really feel like Roger Goodell is the owner's commissioner. He doesn't have the best interest of the players in mind. I don't feel that way with Adam Silver. What do you think about Adam Silver so far? No, I agree. I think he's been very, very good. And I think that, you know, he already had a reputation as first and foremost, a a good guy and a good human, and a guy that can connect on all fronts. And he had good relationships with NBA players. I mean, you talk about getting a, a running start you know, people kind of forget, at least the mainstream audience, that Adam obviously was not some guy from the outside that was hired and brought in after David Stern stepped down. Adam is, is, you know, he's got the NBA in his blood. He's been there for a long time, you know, right by David Stern. So the relationships were already there. Then you got the Sterling saga that for him, and this is not where his head was at, but this was a, uh, a convenient kind of byproduct of that controversy, was the fact that he just, you know, he looked like the people's champ and the guy that, had the players' backs and who stood up for what was right and uh, and did handle that, you know, you could argue possibly even more aggressively than he should have from a legal standpoint. Uh seemed for a little while there that maybe he was out over his skis and wouldn't be able to follow through on what they uh, they had promised in the beginning. But ultimately they did. The players end up feeling like this guy just, you know, he cares about them and, and they're part of this whole process. So, that is the silver lining of even the negotiation and CBA stuff that we're talking about is that you don't have, I don't think, the acrimony that you had last time. Uh, you know, business is still business, so these guys are going to fight for what they want on both sides. But Adam's in a good spot. You know, the, the Danny Ferry situation in Atlanta was an interesting one because, you know, after the Sterling saga, the Hawks deal was the first time that you saw where Adam, and I think he played that right too, but where he said, listen, we're going to have the players' backs, but we can't go around being, you know, being the uh, the ethical police every day of the week and, and overriding teams and what they do. He let the Hawks handle that situation, uh, and I think probably from the ownership side of things, that was smart because you had some people feeling like Adam was going to just smack you on the back of the head every single time that uh, that you, you stepped out of line. And so he's got a, it's a fine balance. He's you know a little bit of a high wire act, but I think he's been very good so far. You know, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot on the show lately about 
owners in general in sports, not just the NBA, but the NFL, Major League Baseball. And we live in this transparent world today where you can get a hold of texts and emails and uh, audio like with Donald Sterling and people in compromising positions. And I think the leagues need to do a better job of vetting their owners. Now, you can't control every email and text and audio conversation or anything like that. But, you know, you don't we see the team spend all this money before the draft with research on the players and um, really getting to know the players. Do the leagues really get to know the owners and their backgrounds before they buy these teams? I think that's something that, that we need to watch out for in sports. Cause if not, you're going to see more Donald Sterling type situations or Atlanta Hawks type situations where people are caught in compromising positions. Do you agree? I do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the NBA is in a period right now where that aspect is having to correct itself because, you know, especially when they did go through this phase where, uh, you know, it was uh, the franchise values are soaring through the roof. And so when, when a guy comes out of left field with a big old checkbook and he's offering the kinds of numbers that the league has never seen, their eyes get big. It's tough to turn that down. And I can't pretend to know all the ins and outs of their vetting process, but, you know, one guy that comes to mind, and, and I'm not saying he's bad for the league, but it was just kind of interesting to watch with Mikhail Prokhorov when he bought the Nets. Right. That the, the headlines early were kind of like, hey, who cares about everything else? But good God, did you see the kind of bankroll this guy has? Right. And, you know, and that was the focus. And then stuff kind of started slowly leaking out that ah, he's got a little bit of, of, uh, of mud on his hands from this thing that happened in the past over here. And we learned a little bit more about, you know, who this guy was and what he had gotten into. Um, I think the vetting process, safe to assume, is, is you know, quickly becoming um, far more than they've ever done before. They're going to learn the hard way. You know, the Sterling thing was your classic example of once a guy gets in the club, unless he's breaking laws, it's tough to get him out. And, and even in this case, he wasn't breaking laws, but it was, you know, the court of public opinion, the power that came with the audio tapes, and, and that was enough pressure to get him out. But in terms of the vetting, yeah, I mean, once they, you know, approve these things, the board of governors says, go ahead and, and come on into this VIP club, then they're in for, for the long haul. And, and I think you're right. They got to make sure they vet these guys. Just a few minutes left. What are some of your top storylines heading into the upcoming NBA season? Obviously LeBron returning to Cleveland and Cleveland getting Kevin Love and reshaping that roster is probably one of the top stories, but what are some other stories you're paying attention to? Well, I mean, and, you know, Oklahoma City, and, and it's kind of what's fresh on my mind. I was there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, obviously, Kevin Durant goes down. Their narrative as a team and a franchise fascinates me because if you look at it in the scope of the last couple of years, uh, the storybook ending for them would be winning a championship this year. And if they did do that, it would be fascinating because you would have had the beginning of the story when everybody questioned whether or not Durant Westbrook could even coexist. Then we started to accept them as the best one-two punch in basketball. And then all of a sudden, you know, Westbrook goes down and we see Durant evolve. Now Durant goes down. Are we going to see Westbrook evolve? That's the next chapter for me. And even with Durant out, it'd be very interesting to watch, you know, these next six or eight weeks, how that unfolds. So that's a major one. Uh, I tend to focus a little more heavily on the West than the East. So I'll keep it there for a quick second. The Rockets are interesting, man. They, they had this, this terrible summer where they lost Jeremy Lin, Omer Ashik, they, Chris Bosch was on the verge of, of going to Houston and they could have sat there and, and said they were big time title contenders, but I still think they're interesting. They still have Dwight Howard, still have James Harden. 
they're changing their identity and their culture. They're talking about defense. Got Trevor a reason there. And, and, you know, we'll see if they can execute on their plan. You know, the Spurs are the Spurs. Pops back. Tim's back. Tony's got an extension. Kawhi Leonard going to take the next step. So a lot of great storylines. But, you know, bottom line is, honestly, I think you mentioned LeBron, Kobe being back. Those are going to be the two biggest ones of the year, even with the Lakers not being a very good team. Is Kobe going to be Kobe? He's such a compelling character. So, I mean, there's plenty to get into here. I'm interested to see Chicago with Derrick Rose hopefully back healthy. Sure. Pau Gasol there. Uh, Doug McDermott, who I think could be a very good NBA player for a long time. Um, you know, maybe not a superstar, but a guy who could be a really good role player, especially on that team. So I like what Dallas did, uh, getting Tyson yep. Chandler back and, and Chandler Parsons, I think is going to be a good player. And at least it gives Dirk some, some help with, uh, he and Monte, um, my Blazers, Rip City. You know, you got to keep an eye on them. They uh, they continue to uh, improve, and um, you know, if they can get any kind of bench support, I think they could make some noise. So, it is going to be an interesting season. I, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really enjoyed your your recent stories. Kevin Durant, your great interview with Steve Ballmer, the new owner of the Clippers, and your feature on Michael Jordan and kind of the ownership narrative there. So you're doing great work. And uh, people can follow Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Amick. Sam, thank you so much. You got it, Brian. Thanks, buddy. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back to close out this edition of Sports Business Radio. Lots of thank you, Sam Amick from USA Today, John Wartime from Sports Illustrated, Nigel Melville, the CEO of USA Rugby, and Grace Hoy from Arizona State University. I want to thank our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger. Thanks to our friends at Pistano for powering Sports Business Radio. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. That's P-O-S-T-A-N-O. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to SportsBusinessRadio.com, click on the iTunes link, or you can go to iTunes directly, type in Sports Business Radio. We are on Stitcher, we're on TuneIn Radio. Lots of places you can get our podcast. We appreciate you listening. If you feel like posting a review on iTunes, that would be great as well. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger. 
Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pistano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pistano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com.